Hi, how are you doing? It's around quarter to nine at night. There's about half an hour left until sunset. And I'm just leaving the house to walk to a little tangly copse surrounded by arable fields that's known to the village children as the fairy wood. As I come out of my house, I'm being dive-bombed by swifts. The moths are out and they're feasting before going to their roosts. My name's Melissa Harrison and I'm a novelist and nature writer who lives in rural Suffolk. From now through summer and into autumn, I'll be helping you keep in touch with the natural world and the changing seasons. Welcome to episode 10 of The Stubborn Light of Things. field of wheat with its unearthly bluish colour and alongside it a bright red stripe of poppies running all the way along the field margin. In the hedgerows the dog roses are coming out and dog is the term that we use for plants when they're not in their fancy garden forms so dog violets, dog mercury, dog roses but I think they're beautiful. They're pink and white hanging in the hedgerows and then below them the really simple daisy shapes of oxide daisies or marguerites on their long stems. Lots of birds alarming which I suspect is my doing but also a very small butt flickering over my head a pipistrella I expect. There's a horse pond here, very low water at the moment because things are so dry. Oh, there's the bat again. But there will be insects over it. And that's what the bat is here for. Yeah, it's just describing little circles over my... <gasps> Blimey, that was close. fantastic smell as well. It's not petrical because we haven't had rain yet, please come. But when you go out in the evening in arable country, it always smells to me as if the crops are all breathing out. I wonder if there's some kind of science to it, I don't know. But if you go out when it's starting to get dark, when there's a slight chill in the air. It's a wonderful, rich green smell. A few days ago, I heard from one of the podcast listeners via Twitter who um, let me know that our favourite Parson naturalist, Gilbert White, 
was the first person to use X's in a letter to signify kisses. And I've checked it out, and it's true. So as well as having identified various birds and animals, we have that to thank him for too. Here are his diary entries from today, June the 8th. June the 8th, 1776. Elder begins to blow. Many hundreds of annuals are now planted out, which have needed no watering. Wheat begins to shoot into ear. Hardly any shell snails are seen. They were destroyed and eaten by the thrushes last summer during the long dry season. This year, scarce a thrush. They were killed by the severe winter. June the 8th. 1778. Bees go into their hives covered all over with yellow farina, so they look like wasps. June the 8th, 1783. The potatoes, killed down by the frost, shoot again. June the 8th, 1785. Planted the bank in the garden and the opposite border with china asters all the whole length. June the 8th, 1788. The black cluster vines from Selborne are in bloom and smell delicately. June the 8th, 1792. Cut off the cones of the balm of Gilead fir in such numbers that they measured one gallon and a half. So much fruit would have exhausted a young tree. The cones grow upright, those of the spruce downward. June the 8th. 1793. The young bantam hen brought out only three chickens. Showers wetted the blades of corn and grass but did not descend to the root. Ground very hard. I've just come to the edge of the fairy wood. Several pigeons have just departed of my arrival and that is a woodpecker that just flew in I know that from its dipping flight this is um, a sort of oval wood you can walk all the way around the outside um, and it's a copse which is from coppice so it was um, once managed for timber and inside there are some huge ancient stools and a, a stool is when a tree's been cut down and sprouted again from the base which lots of species do not not all um, and it's a pity we don't manage woods in that way much anymore because it's terrific for wildlife it lets light through on a successive basis which is is really good it's called the fairy wood by the local children because it's got a path that runs through it that twists and turns for, well, you'd think no apparent reason. But I looked closely at one point and a tree had come down, I don't know when, maybe 30, 40 years ago, and the path had gone round the tree and thrown a loop. And the tree has just you know, remained there and decayed. And I think maybe all the loops in this path were made that way. And I think often about 
modern roads and how many of them might have twists and turns in it that came about because of a fallen tree or a, a mire that people couldn't get their carts out of or some other small natural event. At one point this path goes under a load of Oh, I don't know what they are actually. Um, it's not brambles. It goes under a load of something, and I'm five foot two, and I have to duck really low. So it, it really is magical. I'd love to be here when the snow's on the ground. It must be amazing. But you can probably hear various bits of vegetation catching on me, and pigeons making off. It's quite dim in here. The sun hasn't set quite yet, but there's a big moon, so it's not going to get too dark. My guest this week is the naturalist, writer and journalist Matt Gore, whose book The Pull of the River came out in 2018, and his new one, Under the Stars, A Journey into Light, came out in February and had some amazing reviews. And in it, he explores light and dark from busy London streets with all of their light pollution to getting lost in the Wood of Cree in Dumfries and Galloway to Dartmoor, uh, the Isle of Col in Hebrides. Um, it's a beautiful book. And although he travels very widely in it, he comes to you this evening from his back garden in Suffolk, not too far away from where I am. Oh, good evening. I've just popped outside into the garden and I've uh, lit a fire just to kind of spend a bit of time in wow, one of my favourite parts of the day. It's the blue hour, part of a nautical twilight, when the sun is between 6 to 12 degrees below the horizon, but some light still reaches the highest parts of the sky. The dark is starting to rise. And twilight's such a magical time. When the day shift starts to make way for the night. If I look to the west, the horizon is a soft, warm peach. The moon's already up. So I'm just going to build the fire up now. And um, I'm going to come out in a couple of hours. And the fire will have, will have burnt down to embers and, and the light will have gone. I'm just going to get a cup of tea or maybe something a bit stronger. And I'll see you shortly. Fire is burnt low and um, the sky's quite dark now. There's still a, a faint glow from the street lights that should be well clicking off in the next couple of minutes. When I um, first started writing Under the Stars, I really had no idea about stargazing. I, I found it, well, in truth, I found it quite intimidating. It, it reminded me of the first time I went into a bird hide and, and just had no idea about what I was seeing. But gradually and slowly, I've learnt to unpick the constellations, that that dot-to-dot -dot map of myth and meaning. The stars are a means of navigating and um, of finding yourself in the landscape, but they also locate us in the universe. They give us a sense of, of scale. The light we see has travelled for hundreds of years or, or thousands. And, and one, of the, one of the experiences with stars I always remember is in, um, in Galloway, I visited the, the Scottish Dark Sky Observatory and, and through the telescope there I saw 
the Andromeda Galaxy. And it was just this really strange thought, you know, the, the idea that the light I was seeing that was bouncing off the back of my retinas was, um, you know, was created at the time when the early humans were first taking up tools. And I think it's this locating of the self that's made the stars so important for me as, as COVID became, you know, such an unwelcome satellite into all our lives. But the stars are this constant. They're a, a way of making that big word pandemic so much smaller. But they're also a way of connecting. You know, when I'm looking up at these stars tonight, there's going to be countless of other people also doing the same thing. And we're all looking at the same stars. We're all the same stuff, I suppose. my log in the middle of the fairy wood watching as the colour leeches out of the world around me the sun's set now it's still light and there's a big bright moon but this is definitely twilight and Matt in his piece talked about the blue hour I love that a long period when it's neither day nor night And it got me thinking about binaries and how powerful they are and how prone we all are to binary thinking, day and night, light and dark, men and women, good and bad. But so often, creating binaries is a kind of lazy shortcut that stops us from having to confront the complexity of the world. One of the most pernicious when it comes to human beings is black and white. And I've been thinking a lot about that this week. Or perhaps it's white and non-white, because these are made-up categories. They don't have any basis in reality other than the power we give them, which is considerable and damaging. I've been thinking about what it's been like to grow up as a white person with this binary and the ways in which it has distorted my beliefs and my thinking since childhood. Of course it has. How could it not? I've been thinking about the unconscious biases it's set up and how I can become conscious of them and root them out. I've been thinking about the advantages it's conferred. How comparatively easy it's made my life. While disguising itself as being deserved. Although it's come at other people's expense. It's a lifetime's work to try and understand the damage done by that binary, and to root it out. And our reliance on binaries can get us stuck in other, more personal ways too. In my very early 30s, 
I had a decision to make that had a very binary outcome and I got stuck. I couldn't make it. And it was only with help that I understood that while the outcome of the decision would be binary, my feelings weren't. There were things I was frightened of, things I was excited about, things I was curious about. And it was only when I was able to unpick all those different feelings, instead of trying to force myself into a box of for or against, that I was able to make a decision and for that decision to be one that I could live with. And now I think there's two kinds of people in the world. Those that are prone to binary thinking and those who aren't. As I'm sure you know by now, I've been writing a nature notebook column in the Times for many years. And in November, those columns will be collected together and published by Faber as the stubborn light of things. In this column, which is from June 2016, I mentioned my dog, Scout. And you might not have realised before that I have a dog, because she's not with me at the moment. She splits her time between her city residence and her country hideaway. And she was with my lovely ex-husband, Ant, when lockdown hit, and so she stayed there. And she's having a fantastic time. They adore each other. And she gets to go to all her favourite parks. And I get to see lots of pictures. But I miss her. And I'm really hoping that at some point, soon maybe, I'll get to go and get her and then record an episode with her. Suffice to say, she's brilliant. And I can't wait to get her back and for you to all meet her. The Times Nature Notebook, June 2016. Last weekend, we loaded up the car with outdoor gear, settled our dog scout in the boot, and drove north for six hours to the lakes, where my husband and I spend a week walking each year with his parents. The Hawthorne, almost over in South London, was on the turn in Staffordshire. By the time we reached Cumbria, it was in full and glorious bloom, In 300-odd miles, we had turned spring's clock back by about a week. Watching England unfold on either side of the motorway, I thought about time and its unpredictable effects. Old stone farms, which had once been remote, now had six lanes of cars roaring past them. Rural villages, with their heartbreaking spires, no longer dreamed deep in their meadows, but were busy with golf courses, business parks and executive homes. I had the peculiar sense, familiar and beguiling, of the past coexisting with the present. The England that existed for so long and exists no longer haunting the modern landscape, almost close enough to touch. It was heartening to see so many raptors from the car. Red kites over the M40, a kestrel hovering above the central reservation just south of Birmingham, wings working, head pin-sharp and still. 
Then at last, as hills began to rise around us, buzzards soaring on thermals, broad wings motionless against the sky. There are more raptors of almost all kinds now than 50 years ago, thanks in part to Rachel Carson's 1962 book Silent Spring and the subsequent banning of DDT. The past may seem beguiling, but the present has much to recommend it too. In Glenridding, on Ullswater, the marks of the recent past were everywhere, from the scoured-out river channel to the flood-hit shops. Yet Helvellyn's bulk was just as imposing as always, the valleys and lower slopes clothed like alpine meadows in buttercups, late bluebells, red campion and speedwell. At our rental cottage, built to house lead miners, we unpacked and ate, then sat outside with a drink as dusk fell, 40 minutes later than it had fallen on our London flat. The house martins quietened in the eaves, and the ewes and lambs in the inn-by fields went to sleep. The long day ended around us, and spring moved inexorably on. somewhere quite far away. Isn't that wonderful? When I was a child, I used to try and call to owls. Which is very easy to do by blowing into your cupped hands through your, your thumbs. And I remember a magical evening when one, one kept calling back to me. And I thought I was very special. And now I know that it's actually really common and really easy to fool owls like that. And 94% of male tawny owls will respond to a human making that noise within half an hour. They're the most numerous owl in Britain, and there's absolutely none in Ireland. And they're the one you'll hear if you live in a town or a city. They're generalists, so that helps them do well. They'll eat rodents, frogs, fish, rabbits, even insects. And they're known for being very fierce in defending their nests. The famous wildlife photographer Eric Hosking um, was struck by one in the left eye uh, and lost his eye when he was only 27. He took a really famous photo 
of the hour just before it struck, which you can find online. And within just a few days of coming out of hospital, he was back in the same bird hide, photographing them again, although slightly more circumspectly. It really is extraordinary light here. It's not day and it's not night. I mean, it's light enough to see everything quite clearly. When I first moved to Suffolk, I had uh, a cottage I was renting was about 40 minutes walk from the station. And the train I got would get in at 8.43 and I'd walk home. And in winter, um, it was often a bit of a challenge, especially when it was wet, especially as the lane would sometimes flood too deep for wellies as well. But there were a couple of times I did it in bright moonlight and they were unforgettable. To see your own moon shadow walking alongside you, to see the shadows of every weed and every plant picked out crisp, that's when you really realise that in olden days people had to know which was a moonless night and which when the full moon was because if you're doing anything at night like travelling or piracy or you know whatever you're doing or courting you needed to know if you could see. So there's a great irony to the fact that I was in my mid-thirties, I think, when I first realised that there wasn't a moon every night. I know, you know, I think I think about half of you will be going, oh my God, that's a, that just went past my head. Block me. Sorry, that really took me by surprise. Oh, oh it's back, hello. Sorry. Um... What was I saying? I was saying I think about half of you will think, oh, that, will think, uh, how could you not realise the moon is not there every night? You're an idiot. And I think another half of you will be going, what? The moon isn't there every night? The moon isn't there every night. You know, it's not like the sun, just because it's the same size, looks the same size. It's not that one's in the sky in daytime and one's in the sky at night time. There are moonless nights in the month. It's so magical being out here right now, I can't tell you. I'm going to walk along the lane that leads back into the village. I can distantly see a couple of yellow lights from people's windows. The poem this week is by Michael Simmons Roberts, who I first mentioned some episodes ago in connection with his book Edgelands, which he published in 2011 with Paul Farley. Michael's collection, Dry Salter, um, which came out in 2013, that's where this poem is from, and it won the Forward and the Costa Poetry Prizes, and quite rightly so. It's completely beautiful and it's very unusual it consists of 150 poems of 15 lines each 
you can also get hold of Michael's selected poems from 2016. And his next collection will be called Ransom and is coming out next year from Cape. The Reckoning The days line up outside Shuffle on the gravel to a hissed command All this in the dead small hours When lack of heat makes them transparent So I lift the blind and see a land out for the count Plane trees, parked cars, bins, one cat a ghost of days, my days, in rows too indistinct for me to number them. I'm back in bed, but sleepless. What are they rehearsing? Can we not, I want to shout out of the window, play this by ear? Instead, I tune the bedside radio to shash, faint morse taps, drifts of foreign ballads, to keep the days at bay. Thank you.